Those who remain, I invite you to turn to Psalm 150, the very last psalm in the Psalter. If you don't know where the psalms are, if you just open your Bible in the middle, that's about where you'll find them, and then flip to the very last one. Let's hear the word of God. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray that God would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, open our eyes and our hearts to what you would have us know this morning. That we would be a people who worship you with all that we are. That you might be praised. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you think worship is? We're starting a new series this morning, a summer in the Psalms with an emphasis on worship. What is it? What does it look like for us to be a people of worship? How do we do it? And so when you think about worship, what do you think worship is? You think about it in terms of the liturgy, the call to worship, the confessions of faith, the confessions of sin, the doxologies, the Lord's Supper. Do you think of it in terms of the music and the hymns and the praise songs and the instruments? Do you think of it in terms of a particular time and place where you gather? Or do you think about it in terms of being out in the world and in nature and just experiencing the glory of God there? Do you, do you think about it in terms of how you feel or what you do or how you think? What do you think worship is? We have a tendency as weak and frail and finite people to put limits on what worship is. To carve out a slice of life, whether it's in a particular ritual or in a particular time or in a particular place or with particular things and say that this is what worship is and then we go about our lives. But this psalm gives us a call to worship the Lord with all that we are forever. This psalm expands our view of worship and gives us a glimpse of something so glorious that only God could call us to it and only God could enable us to do it. He calls us to worship Him with all that we are forever. And in this short little psalm with six verses, we see this in five different ways. 
And we're going to go through these quickly. In verse 1, we're introduced to the where of worship. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. This word sanctuary is literally the holy place. The psalmist has in mind the tabernacle or the temple. The the essence of what he's saying is praise the Lord here on earth in the places where it's appropriate. But then he moves beyond that and says praise Him in His mighty heavens. Or in the great expanse. Which is to say that God should not just be praised in certain places on earth. He should be praised everywhere throughout the cosmos, in heaven and on earth, wherever there are beings who are capable of doing it. God should be praised. This anticipates what Jesus teaches us. In John chapter 4, when he meets with the Samaritan woman at the well, and she starts an argument with him about, well, the Samaritans say that we should worship God in this place, and the Jews say we should worship God in that place. And Jesus says, dear lady, the the day is coming where it's going to become clear that what God desires is not people who just go to a specific place, people who worship him in spirit and in truth everywhere. This psalm doesn't limit where it is that we can worship God, but it calls us, in fact, to worship Him in spirit and in truth in every place. What would it mean for us to take seriously the call to worship God everywhere? Oh, no. Simple, practical level. It might mean that when you go off on vacation, as I did for a couple of weeks, you don't skip out on church, but wherever you may find yourself, you set apart a time. You go and you be with God's people and you worship with them. It's one of the reasons we have the live stream, so that even if you're too sick to, to gather, too weak uh, to travel, and still in some way, Connect with God's people. But in a a bigger sense, what does it mean for us to take seriously the call to worship God in every place? Would it not inflame our, our heart for evangelism to see people come to know Him so that everywhere and in every place and in every tribe, language, nation, and tongue, there are people devoted to the praise of God so that there is not a place in all of the cosmos For God's name is not lifted up. Maybe it means we think about where we work, the place of our family, what it looks like for us to take seriously the worship of God in every place, in the church, in our own hearts. Worship of God, there's not a place you can go where he does not call you to give him praise and glory and worship. But in verse 2, we're given the why of worship. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. It's 
Our God doesn't call us to worship him because he is some self-centered megalomaniac. He alone has done things that are worthy of worship. His deeds are mighty. He's made all that there is. With the power of his word, he has called forth suns and stars, plants and trees. He has made us even in his own image. With might and power, he's delivered his people time and again from oppression and injustice, even from our own sin. Bearing in his body, having taken on the form of a man in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, bearing in his body the sins of his people, that we might know salvation. He has done great things. Who could have conceived of a God who would become man? Who could conceive of a God who would make his enemies, his friends? Who can conceive of a God who would not let sin and death and brokenness deter him from his aim to make glorious this universe? So he will make a new heavens and a new earth. But it's not just for what he does. The psalmist calls us to praise him according to his excellent greatness because who God is is worthy of praise. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. He is glorious in all his characteristics and all of his attributes. We see this no more clearly than in the person of the Lord Jesus himself, who is the image of the invisible God. And in him, we see the glory of our God who abounds in mercy and compassion and holiness and righteousness and justice and truth. And so the psalmist calls us not to dispense our worship and our praise haphazardly, but to recognize that there is only one who is worthy of all the worship that we have to give, of all the praise and adoration that we can muster, and that is the Lord God himself. Does the greatness who our God is, move you. This is not a mere intellectual exercise. These mighty deeds are mighty deeds he's done on our behalf. This excellent greatness of his attributes are attributes that he has has demonstrated moves him towards us. Moves us. Him to reconcile all things to himself. Does that move you to respond? Not with half-hearted praise, not with reluctant words of thanksgiving. Hearts that overflow with adoration and thanksgiving and blessing and praise. If we don't understand who it is we worship and why, our worship will be truncated and limited and dead. So the psalmist calls us to take a fresh look at who it is we pray. And he gives us direction 
in verses 3 through 5 on the how of worship. Praise him with the trumpet sound, with the lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. Direction. What do we even make of this? There's so much we could say. This section uh, appeals to our affections, to have the, the, the seat of our being moved to respond to God with all we are. The trumpet that calls us to attention, calls us to gather in His name. This, this response with lute and harp, tambourine and dance, strings and pipe, this response of joy and adoration that, that isn't just contained in how we think, but overflows even into how we use our bodies to give glory and honor to Him and in the most Presbyterian way possible, calls us with loud symbols to make such a joyful noise to God that there is no one who can mistake what it is we're doing, but with loud acclaim, give glory to Him. What would you do? We started issuing symbols when you walked in. And yeah, there is a call here. And not just in our affections, but in our bodies with, with what we see, with what we hear, with, with how we move, with, with how we use our eyes and our hands and our feet and our voices and all our faculties. We are not disembodied souls. We are souls embodied all to worship in our whole being, all that we are. Not just, not just in a moment, but in all of life. These instruments reflect these, these different aspects of, of life in Israel. The, the trumpets that called people into the, the formal worship of God. These lutes and harps that David used while tending sheep to compose glorious music of praise to God. The tambourines, the dance that God's people spontaneously embraced when God delivered them out of the hand of Pharaoh, and out of slavery in Egypt. These symbols with which they could make known the glory of their God on every occasion, formal and informal. Sunday morning, Lord's Day worship. Tuesday evening, quiet prayer. With every instrument, these are not intended to be the only instruments that we could use. It's a a selection of different instruments throughout the life of of Israel. Every device that we can, can think of, how can we devote it to the glory and praise of God? With all devotion, with all efforts, in every moment, in every phase, in every station of life, we're called to devote our faculties and our affection to the praise of God. Because our Lord Jesus Christ, when He comes to redeem His people, doesn't redeem disembodied souls. We look forward to the resurrection from the dead. 
We look forward to life everlasting. He has come to redeem and restore the whole person. That the whole image of God might be restored in us. Yeah, we are so tempted to limit the worship of God. Sometimes we limit it by trying to innovate. We we say, well, I want to worship God in this way. And so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to worship God by doing this or by going to this place or by enjoying this thing. And and we make worship in that way self-serving. We don't stop and pause and consider, how does this glorious God, the maker and redeemer of all things, how does he desire to be worshipped? What does he call me to do and to be? What is he looking for from his people? And we concoct and innovate things that we want to do because it's easy or comfortable or we can dispense with it quickly. And so we limit the worship of God by saying, well, I'm just going to worship God with with my time out in nature. I'm going to worship God just with these particular hymns that I'm going to sing. I'm going to worship God with, with the way I think. Or We don't, don't recognize that, that worship. Worship ought to find its origin, its motivation, its guidance in God himself. He alone is worthy of all worship. And so he alone is able to tell us what that might look like. The reformers of old, looking at some of the, the crazy concoctions that peep, and sinful concoctions of, that people introduced into worship, uh, developed something they called the, the regulative principle of worship, which was their way of saying God is the one who regulates worship. We look to him. See, how does he desire us to give him praise and glory? We actually limit worship when we take it over and make it our own and say, this is what I will do. But we also limit worship when we take the regulative principle and turn it into a pharisaical law and say, well, we can't worship God that way because that's, that's not the way Southern Presbyterian people of standing behave. We don't have tambourines. I wouldn't know how, how to sound a loud clashing cymbal if I tried. We, we read all of these things in Scripture where God calls his people to worship in their whole being, with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, lifting holy hands in prayer, gathering in God's presence with others. We set fences around that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And we limit God's worship by not responding as he encourages and calls us to do, turning this principle into some pharisaical law. What would it look like for us to respond to God with this expansive, glorious overflow of praise and worship to Him as He deserves? Verse 6, he tells us about the who of worship. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And there is in this an acknowledgement that all creation gives glory to God. But there's something 
more significant here, for there's this call for everything that has breath to praise the Lord. This word breath in the Hebrew is the same word used in Genesis 2-7 where God breathed life into Adam. It's connected to when Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive my spirit. There is in this an acknowledgement that that all creation is to give glory to God, but especially those made in his image, especially those called by his grace, especially those in whom his spirit dwells. These, these are without excuse. These must, ought, should give glory and praise to God. Christ sends us his spirit to equip us to that end, to enable us to worship in spirit and in truth. And so there is a call in the psalm that you, you, his people, you are called to worship him. You are at the core of your being made in his image, designed to be worshipers. Does your life, does your identity, do your priorities, do your values reflect this chief end to glorify God and enjoy him? What would it look like for us to take seriously in who we estimate we are? That we are called and made by the Spirit of God to be worshipers in all that we are, wherever we are, in all that we do. If you look at the whole psalm, it gives us a glimpse into the win of worship. Because this psalm concludes the whole Psalter without a real conclusion. It's just left open-ended. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And that, it sort of echoes the first psalm that begins and ends with blessing. The last psalm of the Psalter begins and ends with praise. Praise unending. And in that, it it issues a call that the praise and worship and adoration of God should go on forever and ever and ever without end. And it anticipates That Christ is building a church, not just for a moment, not just for an era, but for all eternity. Gathering a people for himself that he will raise from the dead who will dwell with him in glory in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever living as worshipers. And all they are. And all they do. And this psalm 
And the good news of the gospel invites us into that eternal endeavor now. We do not have to wait until glory to join our lives and our voices to this eternal, glorious call. But that weight of everlasting worship, we're able to step into that now. We are able to participate in that now, that, that our legacy is to be worshipped. The praise and the glory of God. And that ought to shape the way we live, the way we treat one another, the way we gather, the way we do our work, the way we engage with our spouses and our children and our parents and our neighbors and our friends. It ought to change everything about us. That's the theme of our series this summer. What does it mean for us to be a people who worship the Lord with all our hearts, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength? Both when we gather in formal places and when we go out into this world as salt and light, living for Him. What does it mean for us to obey this call to worship the Lord with all that we are forever? May God equip us to fulfill that call, both now and forevermore. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, truly, who you are is too glorious for us to even begin to understand. But help us to understand this great call and privilege that we have, that you have made possible, that you have invited us into, that we might be a people who see you for who you are and overflow with praise and adoration. May those lives of worship, O Lord, bear witness to the world that they too may see your goodness and become numbered among those who give you praise. We ask that you would do this for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.